This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Is Bimimbap overrated? Um, Bibimbap outside Korea is overrated, I think. Bibimbap outside of uh, Jeonju or outside the, the province in southwest Korea, Jolabukdo, I think is overrated because I lived in, in Jolabukdo um, 1996 and I ate Bibimbap in that province very regularly. And it's, it's superb, it's amazing, but it's unlike any Bibimbap you'll get in Seoul or anywhere else and a lot of foreigners and even a lot of Koreans they don't really understand how just how good it is down there and I, I explore that in the book and I try to learn uh, why it is so special and so different in that one particular province um, so yeah for me to eat bibimbap you've got to go to Jolabukdo and probably specifically to Jeonju. And, and, and what did you find? Was it just the right amount of crust at the bottom? <laughs> that, that's pretty. Um, that's pretty important if you're going to have a, a dolsup bibimbap, which is the bibimbap that comes in the stone bowl. If you have a regular bibimbap, then there's there's no crust. It's just in a kind of a brass-coloured bowl, really. Um, but it's uh, the, the secret I found is, is according to my friends who Koreans who, who grew up there and, and and eat it very regularly. They say it's it's all down to the ingredients which come from that province, and it's all that key. The key point is the water. They they put it down to the water um, from that province, which they think is is uh, higher in iron content than other parts of Korea. Uh, but I spoke to I spoke to a what was she 80, 87 year old chef I think in Jeonju, and and she said it's the water. You can't call bibimbap, Jeonju bibimbap outside Jeonju. It's it's impossible. It has to be served and made in Jeonju. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Umar Pagan, Ampike Pagan. That was Graham Holiday. He is a journalist and food writer, and I came upon his book, Eating Korea, at a local bookstore, and I was hooked. It is this journey into the cuisine of Korea. It is this exploration of how food and the eating of it ties into their culture and politics, of how it affects their every social interaction, of how it's changing and evolving right along with their social fabric. Hello, my name is Graham Holiday. I'm the author of uh, Eating Korea and uh, eating Vietnam. I'm also a journalist. So, Graham, your book opens with a quote from Blade Runner, and I was all in, <laughs> right? <laughs> there, is, there is, I suppose, this notion of foreign food as opportunity and adventure and a chance to begin anew, and I don't think enough people look at it, you know, in that way. Has that always been your approach to travel and eating and writing about it? Um. I suppose so. I hadn't really thought about it like that before, but I think, you know, when I moved, I, I come from Britain and when I moved to to Asia, to Korea, I mean, the, at that time in 1996, there wasn't a huge amount of foreign food around, certainly not where I lived in, in the countryside, really. And so you had no choice to, to experiment with local food, but fortunately, I, I absolutely loved it. So learning about a culture through the food um maybe not exactly through choice in a way was was um was absolutely essential um and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it so i guess um in a way you could say yeah the chance to begin again it's um it's putting yourself in that situation where you, you've got no choice yeah that's true then again coming from somewhere like the uk coming from somewhere like london or england it feels like it's such a cosmopolitan city that you would have had 
exposure to so much great food and so many great varieties from practically every possible culture. <laughs> well, that's true. But um, I mean, where I grew up, uh, I did go to college in London for three years and I worked there for a bit, but I grew up in a small town called Rugby, which is in the center of England. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's not exactly the most cosmopolitan place on the planet. There's probably, there probably were like two or three Chinese restaurants and that was about it. Lots of Indian restaurants, of course, but uh, that was about it. I was just about to say, you definitely have a Chinese takeaway in an Indian restaurant. Exactly. Yeah, that, that, that's which, which were great. But um, yeah, the nearest Korean restaurant was in Birmingham. So that's about 50 miles away. And that was the only one. Uh, at that time in, in the Midlands area where I lived, there were some, and there are still, and there are many, many more now in London. Uh, but even in London at that time, there was only really one in one or two maybe in central London. Most of the um, uh, the Korean restaurants were in a, a place which has become known as Koreatown, um, where, where there's lots of uh, Korean supermarkets, Korean restaurants, and, and little cafes now. And even um, Noribang, the karaoke rooms, they've, they've got down there as well. So, you know, in the mid-90s, Korean food was not hip. It was not known about, certainly not in, in Britain. Uh, maybe in America it's a bit different, but, uh, but certainly in Britain it was not a trendy trendy food at all. Uh, even in Malaysia, I think we've, we've had Korean food, we've had Korean restaurants, but it kind of came along with the whole Hallyu wave in that the food uh -huh. culture happened mm -hmm. along with the music culture and the pop culture and the soap operas and all of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're right. I mean, I, I've kind of been out of all of that because I've been living outside Europe for, since 1996 and only in Korea, 96, a little bit in 99. And then I went back for the book. But it certainly seems to be there was a huge effort from from the Korean government to push this this wave of culture and food and, and music uh, and, and literature as well to, to a certain degree and certainly film as well. And this um, is really uh, taken off, I believe. I mean, you'd know better than me in Malaysia. Um, it seems to have really taken off in Asia. I could see it in Vietnam when I lived there. The, the young, especially young, young women were, were very enamored with Korean culture and music, yeah, for sure. We're, we're kind of obsessed, actually. I mean, we went through a slight obsession with Japanese culture, but of course, that happened at a time before the internet, or at least before the internet high-speed broadband was, was easily accessible. So it was somewhat niche and limited as well, but... Oh, no. I mean, the Hallyu wave with soap operas and music, we were immediately hooked. And because it was so accessible, I think it, mm. it, it was accessible to every level of society. So you had, you know, men and women in their 60s and 70s, retirees sitting at home and just binging on Korean dramas. And I guess the byproduct of that, all of that, you know, peer pressure makes you want Korean food afterwards. That's a good point. Yeah, it's, it's, it's in a way the way you describe it, it's almost like cultural brainwashing in a oh, way. But of it's obviously it been very, <laughs> very effective. Yeah, <laughs> but in a good way because the food's so fantastic. You know, I, it feels fantastic really to to kind of in my own very small way to help that a little bit because in the mid nineties, most of the foreigners I knew who lived in Korea were not enamoured with the food at all. They, most of them turned their noses up at Korean food. I was definitely one of the exceptions. However, you go back now and it's very, very different. So foreigners are very open to Korean food, very, very interested in it, even to the point where they're kind of almost more interested in Korean food than many Koreans who are turning to Western food. So you've got this really weird kind of um, 
conflict going on where people are going to Korea to, to foreigners going to Korea to experience foreign food, but Koreans are turning away from it. Younger Koreans, it's this very, very odd um, crossroads at the moment going on over there. Well, it's funny you say that because I think we're all prone you know, every culture, every country, we're kind of prone into thinking that our food is the most unique, the best, you know, the next big thing just waiting to be discovered. But the way you write about Korean cuisine in this book uh, truly makes it sound like it is. It, it, it is the next big thing. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm getting that impression from the bits I pick up about what's going on in the States. Because again, and I, I mentioned this in the book with some an American guy I met who, who wanted to, who came from uh, near uh, Koreatown in near um, uh, Los Angeles, um, and he kind of wanted to learn about it over there. But you know, 20 years ago, it felt very much like a, almost like a closed society Koreatown in in Los Angeles to him, um, because you know there's no no English spoken, and if you can't read Hangul, then then you're kind of lost. Um, but that whole um, sense of Korean food being closed is, is very much changed. That's that's the feeling I'm getting from America. I, I think it's the same, a similar thing happening in Britain, but on a much smaller scale. Um, I'd be interested to know how it's how it's panning out in Malaysia. You know, because um, you know Asian people take their food very very seriously. So I wonder how Malaysians take to Korean food. Oh, we love our Korean food. I mean, there is practically a Korean restaurant in every shopping mall or every new shopping mall that's about to come up, right? It's become... Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's become something that is almost fast food in the sense that you will even have counters set up in different corners of shopping malls where they sell Korean snacks and Korean street food. And then, of course, you've got the proper restaurants where, um, where, they, where they kind of roast everything in front of you. And yeah, it's very, very popular. And I think what's interesting is that we also assimilate food very quickly. And if mm-hmm. we, we buy into these crazes, very, very quickly. I mean, we went through the cupcake craze and the macaroon craze and the donut craze like everyone else. When Krispy Kremes opened here, it was a very big deal, just like what, what happened at Harrods. But I think with cultural food, yes. I mean, back in the 80s and 90s, sushi and Japanese food was a big thing. And I think in the 2000s, or at least the 2010s, Korean food has been has been the next big thing for us. I mean, that, that's great. It's great to hear because, you know, I think maybe coming from, from Britain, it, not now, but certainly when, you know, 20 years ago or so, the, the food culture was quite closed-minded. I think Brits are quite, it's different now, but, you know, quite quite closed-minded around food and, and kind of fixed in their ways. And I think in Asia, it, it, you are more open to, to different experiences uh, food-wise and and to, to hear that, to hear you say that is, is fantastic to hear. And also, you know, I guess what, what might be coming down the line or maybe it's already happening is um, people taking some of these Korean influences and adapting them to local food in, in places. I know it's happening in New York, but I imagine it's probably happening in Malaysia as well. Is Korean fried chicken in Korea everything that we think it is? Because we love it here. Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. Uh, I've never had uh, as good fried chicken as I've had in Korea. And fortunately, um, it's not in my book. I didn't write about it. But I went out with a guy in Seoul who knows his fried chicken very well. And he took me to two of the best spots he knew of. And um, one of those was absolutely fantastic, run by a grandmother and a grandfather. 
very simple, about six tables, spit and sawdust, bare concrete floors, um, bit of a mess, rowdy, air extractor fans trying to desperately get the grease out of the air. Absolutely fantastic. And just served simply just fried chicken with uh, a cabbage salad and some beer. It couldn't be, couldn't be better. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. I'm reading the book and you, and you speak about Korean food and culture with so much passion. Was there anything in particular that led you to find it so compelling, that led you to go, you know what, there's something here, I feel like I need to write a book about it? <laughs> um, it's a good question. I think, you know, it was when I was writing the Vietnam book, um, I had to really dig back to the past because I lived in Vietnam for 10 years and, and really go through all the different food experiences I had. But I found actually... A major part of my kind of um, learning about um, different food, if you like, was was before I moved to Vietnam, which was when I lived in Korea. And the more I wrote about Vietnam, the more I sort of panged for for what I'd had in Korea, because in a way it had been far more um, uh, what, what would I say, a sort of deep dive into the cuisine, because there's literally nothing else for me to eat where I I lived. It was either eat Korean food or eat cheese sandwiches you know, <laughs> or bad pizza. Um, so, so, you know, I think, it, in fact, when I was writing my book, Eating Vietnam, I, I had a slight lull in the process and I put together a proposal for Anthony Bourdain and my publisher just to say, look, I'm thinking of this as well. And then I think it was about a year later they wrote, I said, okay, great, let's, let's, do, let's do Eating, eating Korea for the second book. So it was, it was during the process of writing about Vietnam that I was inspired to do it. Talk to me about the social and cultural pressures around food in Korea, because that comes across in your book as well. This, this, I guess, conflict between the traditional and the conservative with the modernization and the fusion and all these global influences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that was one of the biggest um, shocks to me in a way, because um, again, going back, I've got this span of 20 years to compare things to, but um I really thought when I lived there before that Korean culture and especially food was quite fixed and, and very unwilling to change. And so when I went back 20 years later, I was very surprised that so many things had changed, not, you know, from, from architecture to, to, to society, to people, to women's rights, to smoking in public, to all sorts of different things. Um, but I always thought that food, the Koreans won't go near their food. This is too kind of sacred to them. Um, but I discovered I was completely wrong and it, it's changing in many different ways. So you've got some people um, who who have, have gone back to very old recipes, which nobody's really been been working with for many years. And they're recreating this food from like 100 years ago, before before the Korean War, before the separation of North and South Korea. Um, and actually going back to what they think of as, as the original Korean food, which actually might not be very spicy at all, uh, which would surprise certainly surprise me. Um, because to me, Korean food from 20 years ago was really, you know, it's quite, it, it, it's not very subtle food. It, it comes with a thud. It, it's got chili, it's got garlic, it's got sour kimchi, and um, it, it, it it's not um it's not always the most welcome guest for some people uh, for me i absolutely loved it so but i was surprised to find that um actually going back in history korean food wasn't always like this i don't know if there's a big movement to go back to the roots but there's i'd say if there was any kind of movement it was more in the other direction which is um more towards kind of 
fusion cuisine, more towards um, Western-influenced versions of Korean food, perhaps. Um, I mean, in my research, when I was over there a couple of years ago, a lot of people were telling me that the big changes that are happening now in Korean food are really inspired by what's been happening in Los Angeles with the food truck, for example, Roy right. Choi's um, truck. I think he called he, he fused Roy Choi fused uh, Mexican and Korean, and, and I'm sure many other things as well. And apparently, apparently on the ground in, in Korea, it's influence from that is now spreading in Korea. The government, apparently, I'm told, likes to take uh, credit for the, the changes that are happening in Korea because of their marketing campaign of kimchi and of bibimbap. But people on the ground, they didn't agree with that at all. They were saying, no, it's more. It's coming from Los Angeles. It's coming from Korean-Americans. That's the major influence going forward. But at the same time, you have got these pockets of people who are going back to very old recipes. But I think that's much smaller scale. Well, you open your book with that great story about that sweetish, savory pizza. Yeah, that was a shock because, um, you know, I, I went back and my the first guy I wanted to meet is my oldest friend. He's another Brit. He's lived in Korea since 1989, I think. Um, married to a Korean, knows food very well, has written books about Korean food. He used to be a Korean food columnist on one of the newspapers there. And his wife is a, is a very good chef and she's also a consultant in food. So this is the guy I thought, OK, he's going to put me right. And he takes me to this little bar for this dessert sweet pizza that tastes of fruitcake. And I what what the hell are you showing me this for? I was quite shocked. But I realized after my whole trip around Korea for the book that he, he took me there to show me, look, this is where it's going. This is the future. It's not the thick red suits with tofu and garlic and, and kimchi. This is where the Korean new generation of Koreans, this is where they're at. This is where they're going forward. So I had to very quickly just, okay, open up my mind and just let's see what's happening here. Don't don't come, leave my pre preconceptions behind and uh, let's, let's see what's really happening in Korea today. The Korean food that gets exported over to Malaysia is something along the lines of what we'd consider traditional, right? We've got the kimchi and the grilled meats and all of that stuff. And yes, garlic, tofu, reddish colors. And it was combined with all of those preconceptions of how conservative um, society and culture is. And you've got that great story in your book about your friend who uh, was compulsively clad in miniskirts and was constantly smoking a cigarette because it was an act of rebellion. And... Yeah, And I think a lot of Malaysians still have that view of Korea where intermarriage is frowned upon. It's a very monolithic society with very strong roots to society and family. But, but of course, everything's changing. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, especially you, you see those changes so much more in Seoul, um, in the capital. It's, it's, I think, you know, on, on every single level, um, it, it's changing. And, and the difference is maybe with Korea compared to other countries, not just in Asia, is the speed of change because the speed is so rapid. Um, one of the women I, I met in the, uh, that I interviewed for the book, um, she said, you know, we used to measure uh, the, the difference between generations in, um, in like 10 years or so. Now, I think she said something like two or three years, the difference in generations because the speed of change is so much. Um, so, I, I, you know, I met people there who, who'd been away to study for six months or a year and they go back to their city and everything's changed. All the shops they used to go to have gone, the restaurants have gone, the coffee shops have changed. It, it's 
everything's changed. So it, it was quite bizarre for me to realize that Korean people, they're kind of used to kind of living on a foundation that is constantly shifting. And this is so opposite to where I come from, because in Britain, you know, nothing changes. I go back to my, my hometown um, and, you know, I was born uh, 1969. If I go back there, not a huge amount has really changed <laughs> fundamentally in all those years. In Korea, it's the complete opposite. So it's really interesting to try and understand how that, how that feels to Koreans, how that, how that changes the society, how it changes um, how, you, how you function, um, how you feel about the future. Uh, I, I can't help thinking that there are many good things to do with that, but some some quite scary bad things maybe as well that I haven't quite all fathomed out, but I explore in the book about these, these themes as well. Just, the book's not just about food. It's, it's about all these changes you, you, you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's about politics and just socioeconomics and all of that stuff. And, and I think that's something quite interesting because I find this similarity between the Japanese and the Koreans. I was watching this, a TV series, this Japanese TV series called Samurai Gourmet. I don't know if you've heard of it, which is essentially, um, no. it's about this retired salaryman and he kind of eats his way through every episode. And it's this remarkable meditation on, on, on food and life and nostalgia where every dish or type of cuisine is this metaphor for memory or life's challenges. And it feels like all of the people you encounter in your book, when you're eating with them, they all have some story that the food is so intertwined with their lives yeah i mean i guess that that's a universal story though isn't it really i mean i think we all feel that way um i don't know if you've seen the film ratatouille where the the the, the much feared food critic comes into the restaurant and um he suddenly smells this dish that the rat has served and it takes him right back to his his mother's or grandmother's kitchen you know however many years ago i think it's a universal kind of thing we we all associate food with with memory, and um, it, it's it's human. It's just a human reaction. I do I do think maybe in Asia it's because you so most countries in Asia have a very very healthy and a strong interest in food. So maybe it's even more pronounced uh, in your part of the world than than where I come from. And I think that's the reason I I believe that many Malaysians can relate to eating Korea. I mean, every major moment in our public and private lives has an element of food and eating. And and our food, too, is at risk of disappearing. The street food that we love, the methods which are large, largely passed down by, by way of oral traditions are also just getting lost. And I'm, I'm assuming that's a problem that plagues Koreans as well. Well, that's what I was told, yeah, because, um, you know, Koreans, as we've been saying, uh, have the obsession with the new, with change, and everything shiny and new is good, and everything old and slightly crumbling is 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 maybe not so good. Um, so, you know, even I went to a restaurant in uh, Myeongdong, which is a very fashionable district of Seoul. Lots of people go there shopping, they go to clubs, go drinking there. Uh, very busy on a Friday and Saturday night. But in the center of Myeongdong, there's this tiny little alleyway that I was taken to by a friend of mine. Um, and it's like stepping back in time to like 1967 or 1970 or something. Um, all the furniture's from that era. Uh, the food, there's only one dish. Uh, it's nakchi bokum, which is a, a, a stir-fried um, uh, octopus uh, dish. Um, what am I saying? Squid dish, sorry. Um, and um, and inside this place, it, it's really like a, a, 
you know, you step back in time. But, but I talked to the owner of the place and uh, I said, well, you know, would you prefer to be in a, a shopping mall in the base? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I wouldn't be here. I'm stuck here. Who wants to stay in these old places? We all want to go into the new one. And there was no kind of sense of nostalgia or sense of <clears throat> this is kind of a, a Korean history that she was presiding over. Uh, it was quite the opposite, which, which again, coming from a British mentality, was quite um, quite a shock because you think there's, there's a real sense of pride to, to uphold a, a tradition, whatever it may be. Um, but I didn't get the same sense in career. It was like, let's move on, got to keep moving on, keep keep going faster, keep going forward. Um, so that was in equal parts fascinating and, and very scary to, to see because you know, obviously these dishes, I love them, but uh, they, you know, if they disappear because of progress, then that that's sad. Or if they go behind closed doors, you know, so it's just a grandmother, then it's kind of sad. Because certainly the, the kind of food that I really like in Korea is, is is less and less easy to find. That was probably the biggest shock because it was everywhere before, but it's just less and less common. It's it's more, um, you know, like these invasive plants of uh, McDonald's and Burger King and what have you, kind of taking over slowly uh, across Korea. That's that's uh, slightly scary as well. So, Graham, talk to me about this growing economy around watching people eat. <laughs> Yeah, mukbang. I, I was going to to do something more on that in the book, but I I figured actually at the time it was just fading away from fashion a little bit, and I thought by the time the book comes out, it's it's going to be uh, already an old fad because the fads in Korea they move so quickly. Uh, there are other fads. I, I found a cafe with sheep in it. People go there to drink coffee and stroke sheep. That's still there, but I thought maybe that's going to fade away as well. So, um, but yeah, the tradition uh, tradition is a new tradition, I suppose. But the fashion is um, is for for people who are alone and um, to eat and video stream uh, what they're eating live, and people can send money to the people who eat, and they can chat back and forth with people who eat. So. You, you kind of got a community of people eating alone together and sharing that experience on the internet with somebody who's who's live streaming what they're eating. Sometimes huge amounts, you know, these tiny little stick stick girls or stick guys uh, eating vast amounts of food uh, and getting paid for the pleasure um, is um, is a strange phenomenon. And I guess the the related to that is a newer phenomenon phenomenon called um, honbap, which is, they call it alone person eating, I think, alone single person eating. And there are even now restaurants that are set up in Korea where you can go in and it's kind of, kind of like a little cubicle for you to eat your food alone. Um, so it's not just eating alone at home, it's eating alone together, if you like, in a restaurant designed to eat alone. It's, it's a strange concept, but it's very new. Um, eating alone in Korea is quite a new, a new thing, culturally new, and that that's the result of of all these rapid changes as well, with people's lives just not having enough time to sit down together, um, which is something you know we've had in Europe for a long time, but uh, but in Korea it's quite a new concept, just eating alone. Yeah, yeah, I found that incredibly depressing. It just uh, for <laughs> me that was everything symbolic of our disconnect. This idea that we're that we're eating alone, we're, we're videoing it, we're doing something on Facebook Live, and then people are just watching us because they want to feel connected somehow, or we want to feel connected to one another. And yet the only way we can do it is through these virtual mediums. And, oh, it sent me down a rabbit hole, let me tell you. 
<laughs> no, I mean it's quite scary. I mean, I, I, um, I, I kind of, I, I believe there's an old there's an old saying. I believe in, and families that eat together stay together. And it's kind of old-fashioned, but I think it's very important that it's very primal. It's a very primal urge that humans have to to eat together, to share together, but also to share their their day, to share their time. And maybe you know this is a modern way of compensating for the fact that you can't eat with your friends, you can't eat with your family that day. So let's do the same sort of thing on the internet. On on one side, it looks incredibly sad, and and you know. I mean, certainly not for me at all, but you can also see a positive side that actually people are using technology to compensate for being alone in a way. Um, but yeah, it, it, I think maybe my generation, it's, it, it's, it's a bit difficult to get my head around um, that people would actually want to do this. But uh, yeah, it's a big hit in Korea, that's for sure. Well, Graham, thank you so much for your time. That was absolutely brilliant. No worries. Well, thank you for your interest, Uma. It's very kind of you. That was author and journalist Graham Holiday for a great exploration into food, culture and Korean life. I urge you to check out his book. It's called Eating Korea and it's available at all good bookstores. Now, if you've missed any part of this program or if you know a fan of Korean culture, you can send them the podcast on the all-new BFM app. It's available on both Apple's App Store and on Google Play. You've been listening to Book Mark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.